Isaiah 9 gives us these words written around 700 B.C. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted, warrior in the battle of tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for fire. Four, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And that's God's word and God's promise to us from Isaiah. Again, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to reflect on what that passage means and how God uses that in our personal lives as well. As we look to the screen of the PowerPoint, we see these words. This last week, we were struck by the tragedy of the terrible massacre of 17 people in San Bernardino and then, of course, the 21 others who were grievously injured. And I hope that your prayers, as my prayers, as our prayers go out to those families, to those who are grieving at this Christmas season and the heartbreak that they're going through. We, we want to somehow empathize and suffer with them, and prayerfully we seek the Lord's blessing and care for them. But I was struck by this image that was in this newspaper, the Daily News. And in that it said, God isn't fixing this. And that struck me as a mindset that we struggle with in our society today. And it has a relevance to what I just read. That there is a mindset that when we see tragedies like this, then we know that God isn't there and God isn't good and God isn't doing something that is helping us. In fact, God has known tragedies ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because it wasn't long after Adam and Eve's sin when there were four people in the existence of the world, Cain and Abel. And 25% of mankind was wiped out by Cain as he killed his brother. And ever since then, there's been tragedy. So where is God in that? Let me take you back in history. If you go back in history, you see in Isaiah chapter 9, the very first word that I read, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in the earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. One of the reasons where there is that kind of contempt that is going on is because there was a misplaced hope in what God is doing. 
Now bear with me as we do a little bit of a historical journey together. I want to point here that in Isaiah chapter 7 there was a battle going on. There were, there were kings. There was a division. 700 BC roughly was after King David, after King Solomon. And after King Solomon there was a division in the land. There were the ten northern tribes called Israel. The two southern tribes referred to as Judah. Well, there was civil war that is going between these two Jewish components of the north and the south. And in the course of time, about 750 or so B.C., there was a king in Israel, the ten northern tribes, known as King Pekah. And he took a, a, an allegiance to another king, the King Rezin of Aram. Well, when those two kings gathered together, they were going to go to war to King Ahaz, who was in the two southern tribes, in the south. And as King Ahaz saw these two powerhouses coming after him, King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 had the opportunity to turn to God. It's in Isaiah chapter 7 we find one of the great passages that talks about the virgin birth of the baby Jesus on Isaiah 7:14. And God came to King Ahaz, and we could spend a lot of time there, but God came to King Ahaz and says, King Ahaz, I will save you from King Pekah and King Rezin. I'll save you. You ask for any miracle, any miracle at all, no limits on what you will ask me to do. I'll do anything for you. King Ahaz says, no, God, I, I won't test you in that way. I won't ask you for that. And God says, well, I'm going to give it to you anyways. So he said, there will be a virgin who will give birth to a child, and he will be Emmanuel, God with you. So God gave him the miracle that he declined. God says, I will help you, King Ahaz. Don't worry about King Pekah, King Rezin. Don't worry about them. Well, King Ahaz does what a little bit of the daily news is telling us to do. Forget about God. We can handle this on our own. And so what does King Ahaz do? Instead of turning to God and receiving that miracle, his power, he turns to Assyria. Assyria was run by this particular name that is so hard to pronounce, Tiglath-Pileser III. And as you see the maps that I want to show you on the screen, this shows the power plays of those who were in force. So there's King Rezin and King Kika on the top who are coming down to King Ahaz in the south. And King Rezin is over Aram, which today, as I put on the current map, is Syria. So it's not unusual that Syria and the Middle East, and there is battles that are raging, that have always been raging, that will always be raging in that way. So this battle is ongoing as they were fighting together. And so we see that, that there is this war that is taking place, and King Ahaz has this misplaced hope in this Assyrian power that is up above Syria as we know Syria today, but it's a wide stretch. The Assyrians were sort of the United States of America, the power of the day. Well, wait, in 722 B.C., Assyria came and wiped out the ten northern tribes known as Israel. And then Judah became sort of a dominated power by Assyria. So the summary of it is this. King Ahaz resorts to a man-made remedy which required a God-sized power that he refused to seek out. And as a result, King Ahaz was dominated by that human power because he put his hope in the wrong place, that misplaced hope. Isaiah 8 shows some of the misplaced hope that went on. In Isaiah 8, between 7, 8, and 9, which I just read, 
It says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who into whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And so what he is saying, Isaiah is preaching. He, Isaiah is the preacher of the day, and he's preaching to the people of Israel, to the Judah people. He wants them to understand, you're consulting dead people? You're consulting spiritists and mediums? You're consulting this world when you should go to the law and to the testimonies of God. You should go to the word of God. And it says, and then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. So I hope you catch the historical backdrop of this. Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, much the same history of this gloom, this darkness. That's what Isaiah is preaching. You're in gloom, you're in darkness because you have sought and misplaced your hope in the things of this world when I want you to put your hope in who I am and what I want to do for you. And we can live that way. Now, again, going back to God isn't fixing this. A lot of politics in that that we're not going to go down that road. But it's the mindset of King Ahaz that also said, and he would have, if he had the daily news in his day, that would have been his headline. God's not going to fix this. I will fix this. I'll have an alliance with Assyria, and they'll come and help us. Well, that turned really, really bad, and it became the means of destruction of much of the Israel. The same day that that headline came out here this last week, the day after the massacre in San Bernardino, I'm reading through the Psalms. I read a Psalm every day. First thing in the morning, I love to read a psalm. And let God speak to me. After I had just seen that headline on the internet, I then opened up Psalm, and the psalm of the day that I read that same day was Psalm 33. Here's a portion of what God said to me, and I want him to speak to us. Part of that Psalm 33, God says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now that's Israel. That's God's promise to Israel. The king, and here is the, the king is not saved by a mighty army. Your hope is not in what man can do. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. We can look to the horse, but it's a false hope. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, not those who rebuff him. On those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you. And what God is driving for us is to understand where our hope should lie. We can have misplaced hope in the things of this world, the mighty warrior, the, warrior, the mighty horse, the strength of the king, the strength of the powers of the nations. God is over all of that. We don't always have evidence that he is over it, but he is. And he says, study my word, become a student of my word, see the history of my word. People like King Ahaz, who resorted to human means, but then rebuffed the power of God, learn from them as you study 
obscure passages like Isaiah 9 and begin to understand the beauty of what God wants to do. And that's what we want this morning. The problem that we have is sort of a lost or fading hope where sometimes we live in gloom and there is this sense of despair. And God said in Isaiah 9, 700 B.C., that I want you to understand that there is a hope coming. And that's the solution base that we want to look at. Our hope is renewed in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate Christmas, this is what it's all about. Notice what he says to us in Isaiah 9. Seek God's light to reveal those areas in need of renewal. In Isaiah 9, 2 and 3, again, rereading that same passage of earlier. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And so Isaiah says, I see you in your gloom. I see you going to spiritists and mediums. I see you seeking out the resolution of this through human means and resources of this world. I see you do that, but I want you to understand that there is a great light that's coming that is more powerful than anything that you're trying to find solutions in yourself. So he gives that hope. And then it's interesting, this same passage of Isaiah 9 is quoted by Matthew. And Matthew shows how this great light this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are the northern part of the nation of Israel. That's the two tribes that are in the northern part. And Matthew quotes from that to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of this. In Matthew 4.14 it says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the northern part of the nation of Israel. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the light and the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And so this is is the the way that the Scriptures synchronize with themselves. The, The Bible was written by one author, and it's called God. He used many human means by which to pen those words. But when Isaiah said this 700 years earlier than Jesus' birth, Matthew says, well, this is the fulfillment of that 700-year-old prophecy, and it's coming to take place now. Jesus is that light. Seek where Christ can bring that light to us to reveal what he wants us to know, to bring spiritual renewal to our hearts, and don't resort to those things this world alone, but resort to what God can do. That's the backdrop of what is going on here. And God wants us to be blessed through that. In this last week, we have a chapel every week with our staff. And once the first Tuesday of every month, we have an early chapel, we call it, at 7.30 in the morning. We get everybody here at 7.30 in the morning. And we meet with our school, elementary, preschool, and all of our church staff. We're all in the same room. And this last week, I invited a couple in our church to come and share of their journey and where God has brought them and where he is bringing them now. That's Jeff and Kim McKee. And they usually come the second hour of young family. And uh, Jeff has been on quite a journey where God is shining the light to lead him in his life. He left a good business, his family business. They make baseball bats. And he left that to join up with the angels for a period of time to work with some of the inner city kids that need help and in the, in the, they use baseball to reach out to those young kids. Part of the handicap that Jeff felt in that role was that 
he didn't have the full freedom to talk about Jesus Christ as he would like to. So just recently, a few months ago, he left the angels and their RBI program, and now he has joined Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They just signed on about, I think, four weeks ago. And he's in the process of raising money to support himself as a, quote-unquote, missionary to Christian athletes. You see a lot of FCA over there at Foothill High, and he's going to other areas of the community like Santa Ana, where sports is a great venue in which you can reach young people for Jesus Christ. And at Fellowship of Christian Athletes, he has an opportunity to share Jesus Christ openly because that's the whole point of what they do. But they use sports and baseball as a medium through which they can reach out to people for Jesus Christ. Well, when Jeff and Kim took on that assignment, it, mean having, it meant having zero income except for the wonderful salary we pay, pay Kim to work here in our preschool, which is not a lot, believe me. And so they have shared last Tuesday how there are times when they're just looking to see, you know, what food do we have to get by? And every so often someone might drop a little bit of money in her box over here for the school. And she was at a point, Kim, maybe feeling even more than Jeff, where Kim paused for a moment a couple of uh, months ago. She says, God, and he, she didn't tell Jeff this at all. She said, Lord, we could really use $4,000 to make it through the end of the year. That's, I think, what we need. And she just left that in the Lord's hand. Well, Jeff put on some clinics and some uh, seminars and had the baseball kids there and, and put on a, an outreach event. And in that outreach event, there were some adults there that just handed Jeff some envelopes. And he took those envelopes and thanks, didn't know what they were, and he got home and he opened up the envelope, added up to $4,000. That's how God blessed them. God doesn't always do that. I'm here to clue you in. If you need $4,000 between now and Christmas, ask him, trust him. Maybe it'll come through means that you don't even understand. But in that case, God loves to surprise us where the request is placed before the mighty God. And the mighty God speaks independent of husband and wife. Jeff receives the gift of the prayer of Kim. And God provided. That is this light of Christ that comes when we step out in faith. We trust God for what we don't see. We don't know how he's going to provide. And as they are going down this journey, the journey is not done. There is still more that they will need down that road. But it's that beautiful blessedness of God saying, you know what? I see what you're doing. I want to provide for you. I want to shine my light on your lives because you're shining the light of Christ into these students' lives. And I want to see more of that light go out. So Jeff and Kim, I want to bless you with that provision. Because I love what you're doing. I hope we are in a place where we're walking by faith in God, where his light can shine through us to others so that we can see his hand of provision in ways that we never could have expected. That's what it means. And for a lot of us, it means helping people know Jesus. Here's where the light needs to shine for a lot of us. 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are many who are blinded to what we're talking about here. There are many who are living their lives like King Ahaz, looking to some human resource alone to remedy the challenge of the loss of hope. And God says, I want you to find my hope in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want that to come and penetrate your heart. So like Jeff and Kim McKee and countless others like them, we walk by faith in the provision that God will make for us. And we want to spread that good news. Here at Christmas is the best time to make that good news known. So I ask the question, what is he shining the light on in our lives? What is he revealing in our hearts? Where are those areas of renewal and need? Where does he want to lead us? Are we walking by faith on that journey, trusting him? And it's not easy to do. And I know it hasn't been easy for me. I trust you will walk in that journey as well. The second thing that I noticed in Isaiah 9 is to ask God to remove the burdens of this world. Isaiah 9, 4, and 5 says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, is the battle of Midian. The battle of Midian refers to Gideon. Here they're going back historically to be reminded that God is a mighty God. Here's Gideon who took this little handful of 300 men, the least of the least, Gideon, and powerfully worked through him to give him victory. So here's Isaiah going back in time, as we need to go back in time to remind of our great mighty God. The rod of the oppressor is the, at the battle of Midian, as Gideon had that great battle and defeated the enemy. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for fire. God wants to remove the burdens of our lives. He wants to lift them up. And you wonder, what, what are those burdens that we live with? It's interesting that there's a lot of people who live in this burden of, of not knowing what the future holds for them. I was intrigued by uh, uh, New York Times had a New York magazine, and in that they had a, uh, a really lengthy interview with Larry King. Remember Larry King of CNN? Well, Larry King was talking about all aspects of his life, and one of the things that he despairs over is what happens after you die. So Larry King has taken upon himself to contract with a cryonics organization. That's where they freeze your body as you die so they can thaw it out in a microwave somewhere and then bring the healing solution that has now been created. And I was intrigued by what Larry King said. Larry King says, you know, I think the cryonics people are a bunch of nuts. He says this. And he says, but it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Because there's a lot of people in this world who have no hope. Well, Larry King has his hope in the burden of cryonics, relieving the burden of death. Wouldn't it be wetter, you know, the, the sea of cryonics, if we could put sea of Christ and, and replace the things that we are trying to manipulate in our power, like somehow having life after death? I mean, that's the human human nature to sort of remedy it on my human science and we don't put down science we don't put down history but to remedy afterlife of death and things of this world whereas what Larry King needs and we need is Christ he wants to remove those burdens and then also we then therefore submit to Jesus Christ to rule over our lives today and this is that great prophetic word that we often hear at Christmas time it shows that Isaiah was preaching to 
the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the first time. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I sort of broke that down just very briefly on the back side of the outline, little digging deeper area. But I love these images that he gives to us about Jesus. He is a child who will be born. He comes in humility and simplicity. He comes in a manger where there was nobody there to exalt him as the mighty God who was born in human flesh. He comes in simplicity and, and humility. He comes as a child. He comes as a government will rest on his shoulders. You know, in the United States of America, I just read this last week, statistically, our country is at its lowest trust value of government as we've been in a long time. Most of us don't trust government. And there's probably some reasons for that. Probably. What I love about Jesus Christ, when he talks about the government is on his shoulders, that no matter what we think about our government in earthly terms, there is a government of God that he wants to rule over us. And what a, what a great place to know that no matter what I'm doing, and even as Bill referenced bicycle and motorcycle accidents, that even when we go through those things and we pay a price physically, don't you know, it's nice to know that you're not doing it alone, but that there is a mighty God who wants to relieve the burden, who wants to be a governing force in our lives to watch over us. And that's why I love this imagery where he says a wonderful counselor. He is an exceptional counselor. He is one who will lead us, who will teach us, who will guide us. He is a mighty God who is all-powerful and there is nothing too difficult for him. And that if a Kim McKee can ask her $4,000 and a month later God gives her $4,000, that is not stretching the limits of God's capacity to help us. And that he is also an eternal father. And the eternal father doesn't mean that Jesus is the same as the father in heaven, the trinity. It's kind of a complicated trinity thing. But it means he is eternal father in the sense he rules over us like a loving dad and wants to care for us. He is the prince of peace that wants to bring peace into our lives. And that's who Christ is. And if you've never come to the point where you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he died upon that cross to pay for your sins, Every human effort you ever make to get to heaven, it will never, never succeed. A lot of people work hard to get to heaven. They try to keep the Ten Commandments. They go to church. They, maybe they give to the church. They give to charities. They do good things. And they think, those are the human means by which I can gain favor with God and he will save me. God makes it very clear that those are human efforts like King Ahaz trusting in Assyria or the people of Israel trusting in spiritists and mediums, God says, why do you look to the dead for the life that God wants to give? I don't want to look to dead things of this world like my good works. I want to look to the living one who is Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, who gives peace between myself and my mighty God. And by putting my faith and trust in Jesus alone, my faith alone in Christ alone becomes the saving remedy for my eternal destiny with God in heaven. And anything else I put my faith in is like King Ahaz, trusting in spiritists and mediums and the king of Assyria to be remedied by what the mighty power of God can do alone. We encourage you to know Christ as the means by which you get to heaven. And then not only that, but then finally we wait faithfully because Jesus is going to come back. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. 
From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he's talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah, this great prophet, the, one of the greatest prophets ever. Then he goes in, a, in verse 7, Isaiah 9, 7. Now he's looking to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He combines them together. A student of God's word sees the richness of the fabric of Scripture and how the Scripture can guide us and lead us and see this is the hand of God in the first coming, the hand of God in the second coming, the hand of God on kings like King Pekah and King Rezin and King Ahaz. And I can learn from them because that's the backdrop. These are not obscure passages that have no relevance to me. They teach me and guide me and open my eyes to what God wants me to know. And that he says, although it looks like when you see tragedies in San Bernardino, as though there is no God who is watching over this world, there is yet a kingdom to come that Jesus will provide, and he will come a second time, and he will establish a government where it is justice and righteousness for a thousand years. That's what God is promising. Now here's our challenge. In the days of Isaiah, when he prophesied in Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will give birth to a child. When he prophesied in Isaiah 9.6, this will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. When Isaiah prophesied the first coming of the Messiah, the nation of Israel did not believe him. They wandered from him. They rejected him. They never studied God's Word. They never studied the Torah. They never studied the Bible as it was in those days. And they buried it in the temple until later King Josiah discovered it. He says, my goodness, we have been in disobedience to God for all these years. But ultimately in 586 B.C., looking at history, after Assyria destroyed the ten northern tribes, Babylon destroyed the two southern tribes of Judah. In 586, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. They were a spiritual desert, not looking for the coming of the Messiah, but turning their backs on God and bathing themselves in the Baal worship of the foreign powers that overtook their land. And here is our warning. Even as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, we cannot become like those people and give up the hope and resort to human hope rather than God's hope. And the waiting... And sometimes the wondering of when will this righteous and just kingdom be established. But you and I must wait faithfully, eagerly seeking the return of Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from the promise of Christ's coming the way the Israelites did in 586 B.C. God gives us that history. God gives us this truth so that we never give up waiting on him even when we see the evil, evil things of a world that is controlled by the power of Satan. For the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's Jesus Christ. That's Satan himself. God says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And here's what Jesus said to us just the day before he died on the cross. He said in John 16, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home, to leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. In the coming of this crucifixion, they're going to be scattered. They have no idea what's going on because the Father is with me. But then he gives us this admonition. As he gave it to the disciples, he gives it to us. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And we're going to wonder. We're going to wander. We're going to question. We're going to see headlines. Is God working in this? God is not here. Don't trust God. Don't pray to God. We see those things, and they're snapshots of history. And people say those things impulsively, but we come back to the, what Scripture teaches us, and He guides us. Let me wrap up with a little story that comes out of one of our members here at Carver Church. This is anonymous, but we have a ministry here called Celebrate Recovery. And it's where people go who have hurts and habits and hang-ups that they can't quite get over. So they gather together in a group of people that we call Celebrate Recovery on Wednesday nights for God to minister to their hearts. And one person wrote, I arrived at Celebrate Recovery about four years ago after more or less 40 years of drinking. My third marriage was going down the drain and I had a one-year-old son. I'd grown, I'd grown up angry. A functional alcoholic parents were physically abusive to each other and me. I was pretty fearful and quick to see danger. My parents repeatedly told me that I would never amount to anything. I had older friends in the neighborhood and most of them had pretty dysfunctional, screwed up families as well. My friends became my family by fifth grade. I began to drink. My parents divorced when I was in sixth grade. By ninth grade, I was taking drugs and having sex. Rebounding from a particularly drug experience in ninth grade, I went to church, heard the good news, and trusted Jesus as my Savior in ninth grade. But later, after two failed marriages and countless destroyed relationships, I was still blaming everyone else for my problems. Instead of looking at myself and seeing how my anger, my distrust, my controlling nature had destroyed so many relationships, I vowed to prove them all wrong and make them all sorry by being successful. I would show the world that I am not worthless and that I would amount to something as he resorted to human means and human hope to get there. This was my pattern of life for 30 years. I'd cut off relationships and be motivated to achievement by the need to prove the world wrong. But I did my duty and I was a functional alcoholic. However, I could not maintain a good relationship with anyone close to me. Despite two failed marriages, I started dating again. I met a woman. We went to church. And after two years of dating, we got married. I drank sometimes by the rules and sometimes out of control. We fought. We had a baby. He's five now. When he was about one year old, I got hammered and screwed up everything. My wife told me to get sober or get divorced. This is my third wife. I finally realized I needed to have help. I went online and looked around and found Celebrate Recovery at Calvary Church. Hearing the participants' testimonies made me realize that others had lived my life, yet they found hope. I also saw that the big group was teaching the steps on a yearly cycle. My small group open and shared was great. I heard in detail about the addictions and overcame and the dire straits that my brothers had been in. I found people who understood my problem and understood my anger and frustration. And hearing others being honest challenged me to dig deeper. Eventually, a step study started. I joined it, and week after week, I began to see that my drinking was a symptom of my problems. It was not the problem. It was a symptom of my problems. And I was a still scared little kid who stutters and who just wants to fit in and be loved, a kid who always heard that he was worthless and that he would never amount to anything, and I spent my whole life building walls of worldly success, education, sarcasm, manipulation, and anger to protect myself. That's what King Ahaz did. He went to Assyria. I don't need God's help. I can handle this. 
I've got a powerful nation. I don't need God's help. I can do this. I'm successful. I'm smart. I'm rich. I can handle this. After a year or so at Celebrate Recovery, I thought I had things under control. And that's always my problem, thinking I have control. I realized I did. I let little things become big deals. In the process, I began to make myself crazy. My expectations and my desire to control things end up with me feeling angry, frustrated, and, and hurt. We do want to control things. It's hard to trust God's control. The government of Jesus' shoulders is what we need. I'm learning that there are really no big deals beyond my salvation, the salvation of my family. And I can't control my family's salvation. It's a really simplified thing to realize that only big deals are out of my control. It's funny. My wife has even taken to saying it's not a big deal on occasions when she would previously have gotten angry. God is changing me and those around me. I have realized also that I never had it so good, a wife, a kid, grandbabies who love me. I have a God who knows me and still loves me. All my problems are little deals, really. I never had it so good. And most importantly, I have met men that I can turn to and share my greatest fears, my failings, and my madness. I have a small group that I can go to every Thursday and a whole country of CRs that I can visit. From the time I arrived in recovery, God has made it easier for me to be sober. I've never really considered drinking again, but the real change that needed to occur is the underlying hurts that caused me to engage in such destructive behavior like drinking. I'm not there yet. I still do selfish and wrong things that hurt relationships, but I'm getting better. I believe that celebrate recovery is what God would have me do, and I believe that I'm allowing Him much more control in my life. And This has given me a new freedom and a new joy. An example that when Jesus Christ, this child that is to be born, becomes my government, my mighty God, my wonderful counselor, my eternal father, my prince of peace. When the hope is in the right thing, Jesus Christ makes all the difference. I'd like to invite you into that in a very specific way, in a unique way, to somehow come forward, even as we took communion, and the communion represents sort of a tangible way to say, yes, I am communing with a holy God. I want to invite you into that in a specific way as well. Sort of the symbolism of doing something that says, yes, I need the light of Jesus Christ in my life. I need to take whatever, whatever gloom, whatever burdens, and put that faith in Jesus. And here is one way for me to tangibly express that. We have these pallets up here. On each of the pallet are a bunch of little candles. And this isn't something that we sometimes see in other churches. This is a symbolic way for me to say, as I take this lighter and I light one of these candles, I'm saying, Lord, let your light shine through me. Let me be a means of hope for those who need to trust in you. God, shine through me at work. Shine through me in my neighborhood. Shine through me at my school. Shine through me at L.A. Fitness. Shine through me at Starbucks. Wherever I go, wherever I spend time, let the light of Christ shine through me that I give people an opportunity to put their hope in the mighty God, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us. Then I invite you to come up and take one of these lighters and light a candle and say, Yes, Lord, I want your light to shine through me as well. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. 
that his light has come, as Isaiah said in 9-1, to shine into the gloom of the people of Israel in those days. And Lord, if there's any gloom in our hearts, may our hope be placed in you and not in the remedies that this world alone can provide. Help us, Father, to experience the light of Christ as he lights the way and gives us an everlasting hope that will never disappoint as we seek you at this moment and pray it in Jesus' name.